Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. With Benelin on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, Teachers Inspire 2022, organised and run by DCU, is calling for nominations of inspiring teachers in Ireland and stories about the positive impact a teacher has made in their lives. The initiative, which celebrates all teachers, highlights how in and out of the classroom they can inspire imagination, creativity, confidence and courage. Teachers Inspire is curated by acclaimed author Louise O'Neill, who also presents the Teachers Inspire podcast, and she'll be joining me to discuss the importance of positive role models and the role of inspiration on our life paths. I'll also be joined by clinical psychologist Sean Foy, an expert in the area of addiction, who has so much to say and share from his years of work. So what kind of health and wellness week did I have? Well, it's been a slow starter for me this year and I feel I'm kind of happy to go with that flow. The alarm goes off for the school run and that has continued to be a bit of a shocker. I think it's the dark mornings, but I did go for a workshop with the yoga teacher Sarah Shannon, who was on the show a couple of weeks back talking about going from being a corporate lawyer to working in wellness. And at this workshop I went to with her recently, she was talking about the Celtic wheel or calendar. And according to that, the year begins on Samhain, the 31st of October. And that's the start of the darkness, a time for rest going within. And that continues into the winter solstice in December. And that said to lead up until Inbolg, which I'd never even heard before, on February 1st. And until then, we should just be listening, planning, dreaming. The light is starting to come back, but only Inbolg brings new beginnings and a new focus. So until then, we just float along. And you know what? I'm going with that. I'm totally into it. Work and life is obviously kicking off and I'm still pushing forward with certain meetings and ideas, but I'm going very gently and I'd have to say it feels good. And I was delighted this week to introduce a book launch for a very special book, which I recorded the voice for the audio version. It's called Knowing No Boundaries by Hannah Daly, who has dyslexia and dyspraxia. And despite having the reading age of a small child, she has managed college, a master's, travel the world, is an occupational therapy uh, occupational therapist and a mother of four. She's going to come on the show in a couple of weeks and I can't wait for you to hear her story of how we should never underestimate the abilities of someone who simply requires a different way of learning and moving through the world. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Dr. Sean Foy is the founder and managing director of the Learning Curve Institute and is a clinical psychologist who has worked in the caring profession for over 25 years. He holds a doctorate in clinical psychology, a master's in addiction, as well as two honours degrees. Sean also regularly delivers lectures at NUI Galway as part of the master's in social work and the clinical doctorate in psychology and is a frequent guest lecturer also at the London Metropolitan University. And he joins me in studio now. A lot of study, Sean, a lot of work, a long CV and a, a lot of experience in that. So I'm delighted to have you in studio. Thank you. No, it's, it's lovely to be here, Claire. Thanks. Thanks very much for uh, uh, for uh, for inviting me in. It's very interesting. Um, a thing that isn't actually there is that I didn't do very well in school. I uh, actually failed my leaving cert. Um, so, yeah, so it's just one of those things. So when you read that out, it's it's a bit like <laughs> if I went back to my 17 year old self I would have kind of went yeah I don't think that'll be happening <laughs> Wow and I, you know I do think that's something that really needs to be tackled our education system 
and the way it's set up and the people that fall through the cracks. But mm. what led you then when you left school without your leaving cert? Where did you go? How did you end up working in the care profession? Well, I grew up in Mayo and I did what most people do uh, when you fail your leaving cert. <laughs> I, uh, I immigrated. So I worked on the buildings in, uh, in London for about, I'd say about six or seven months. Uh, many to get up enough money to go to America. And so I went to live in New York for about four years. Uh, and when I was in New York, I studied uh, psychology for about two and a half years. Um, but I, the simple thing is I ran out of money. I hadn't got enough money to kind of finish it off. And had you always been interested in working, uh, the workings of the mind and the brain? I, I'm always fascinated what leads people to psychology. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you like the... The interesting thing is, on a personal level, like the thing that kind of led me into it was, I was studying uh, psychology in New York at the College of Staten Island, and I was doing what would normally be referred to as kind of like um, an arts degree. So I was doing a variety of different things, and I think it was majoring in business, and I was minoring in creative writing. Uh, two things I, well, one thing I loved creative writing, and one thing I wasn't too fond of, which was the business. But I got to sample psychology. And I went into a lecture with a guy called Professor Eamon, uh, Ed Meehan, rather. Um, and honestly, Claire, in the space of 20 minutes, I just decided I wanted to be a psychologist. And that is that is the absolute truth. I wanted to be a psychologist. I remember Ed uh, telling us in that lecture, um, he said it took him 12 years uh, to become a psychologist. And his last thing was, if I can do it, anybody can do it. Uh, it took me 26 years, but I, I got there in the end. And there's a huge amount of self-reflection with studying psychology, isn't there? Because it's not just understanding the minds of others. You have to understand your own before you could ever yeah, help no. anybody else. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I think I think 90% of it is that there's an awareness of kind of where you're coming from yourself and the triggers that might kind of trigger you in the way that we feel. So you think about the way that we interact with, with people and just the way that we speak with people. Um, you know, the classy thing when I do training is I ask people to think about have you ever met somebody and you've never you never met them before, but for the first time, and the first time you meet them, you kind of look at them, and you kind of go, yeah, that person's all right. Yeah, I like that person. And then same thing, different person. And you meet the, another person and you look at them and you kind of go, I wouldn't want to go too close to that person. No, you haven't met the person. You don't have any kind of knowledge around it. So what's going on actually is yourself. And so the idea is to try and tap into that. Ooh, that's yeah. interesting. <laughs> I, I liked you, Sean. We just met a few moments ago. I got the good vibes. I'll just let you know that. <laughs> You've no choice. You have to stay here whether you got the bad one or not. I know you worked a lot with the homeless. So when did that come about? Yeah, so again, like I came back from, uh, came back from New York and um, I was uh, broke. <laughs> and uh, so I just got, I went back working on the buildings, just went back to what I kind of knew. Um, but to be honest with you, like I was probably the worst builder in London. Um, just, you know, it just wasn't for me. Uh, I could make people laugh on a building site, but I'm not so sure if I was very good at building. Um, but after probably a, about nine or ten months, I just decided, look, I don't want this. So I walked off. I, I, I basically I, f I quit my job. I just kind of walked away, which is something I've never done before. Uh, I've never done since. It's the only job I've ever actually kind of uh, left. Um and I came home and I remember I was renting out a room to a guy and he was working with uh, people who were experiencing homelessness and they were looking for people to do little bits of work here and there. So I went for an interview and I began to work with the homeless. And so I did that for about 10 years in, um, in London. So I worked in a variety of settings like detox, rehab, outreach, and then a lot of <coughs> what's referred to as direct access hostels. 
Um, so, so essentially just you'd, you had 20 beds and people would leave in the morning and they'd come back in maybe after five and you would fill it up and it might be the same 20, it might be a different 20. Um, and it was low threshold. So basically, so we would, we, we, or, uh, we would, uh, we would manage a lot of really quite problematic behaviour uh, when people were kind of uh, maybe possibly acting out. And it's one of the misunderstandings, I think, the stereotypical view of homeless people is uh, is not great, really, and it's not necessarily rooted in fact. M- my experience has been very different, you know. Like, you know, I've I've met the most amazing, amazing people who just happen to be homeless, you know. Yeah, and I don't think we talk about it enough. We kind of just treat it like it's a, a charity and something that goes on and is going to be in every city all over the world. But it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. It's a myriad of people who've been let down along the way often. Look, you're absolutely right. Like a very interesting thing happened uh, in New York, I think in the mid 90s. Um, there was a guy who's a psychologist working in a hospital and he's seen homeless people kind of coming in. And what he, what he worked out was that they actually did quite well uh, when they were in hospital. But when they went back out onto the street, things would kind of fall apart. And he created a thing called Housing First, uh, which is well known in, in Ireland now and lots of charities are doing it. Uh, and lots of um, uh, non-profits are doing it and it's great, it's absolutely great. I worked uh, as a senior clinical psychologist uh, half-time in Cork with the Housing First team in Cork. I was lucky enough to kind of do that. But my commitment to it was I travelled from Mayo to Cork, uh, you know, for two and a half days work a week. That's a serious commitment. Um, But the reason I did that is because the model is a complete 180 from the way that I worked initially. So initially, when I started working, which is 30 years ago with the homeless, the deal was, you know, you try and get people into accommodation, uh, normally a hostel, then they get into kind of semi-supported, and then they'd be on their own. And Housing First just turns that on its head. It just takes people who are, you know, uh, they might have mental health challenges, they might be active in their drug use, and the idea is that you provide accommodation for them. You give them really high-quality accommodation, and you have a team of people to support them. And the evidence is very clear that's actually the most effective way of housing homeless people. Yeah, people need support. Absolutely. And when you get the right it's, support, you can flourish. Absolutely. It's so simple. Like, it's so simple. You know, it's just about trying to be with somebody exactly where they're at and not to try. Not, a lot of times I think people get into a thing that's called the writing reflex. So this happens in counselling all the time. So the deal, Claire, is that you tell me a problem and I, I think I know what the answer is. So I just try and get you to, well, all you got to do is, so for instance, if the issue was weight or something like that, the writing reflex might be, well, you got to exercise and lose weight. But that doesn't work. It's all about trying to be with the person in the moment when they're in the situation that they're in. It's not about fixing. It's about listening, really. And trying to, you know, so do we listen to respond or do we listen to understand? It's just a really simple thing, you know. And the deal is that if you listen to understand, more than likely there'll be a successful outcome. And when did the focus on addiction come in? Was that true? working in, in homelessness. Now, again, I'm not buying into a stereotype that there's a lot of, of course, addiction yeah. in yeah. homelessness, but there is a sad fact that it, that, that there there is. It's not the cause of homelessness, yeah. but it, it is evident there. Yeah, so just before I can advance that, like an interesting or an interesting point to make clear is it could be that people develop addictions because of the fact that they're homeless. People might become homeless because of their addiction. And it is a bit like, um, it is a bit of a chicken and egg thing yeah. for, for them. And but I don't think there's many people who, you know, often if you're giving money to somebody on the street, the person you're with might say, oh, they're only going to send that in drink or drugs. And like, I've often thought to myself, well, 
how would you get through no, a night out in course. the street of Dublin? Yeah. What would you want to do yeah. to try and numb yeah. whatever pain had led you to there yeah. or whatever pain is being caused by being there? But again, it's this idea that I'm going to give you money and I want you to spend it the way I want you to spend it, as opposed to I'm giving you money. And like for a lot of people who are really, really hurting, there might have been a lot of trauma. There might have been a lot of abuse in the background. Who knows? Might have been like you don't know anybody's anybody's story. It's a bit like there's three of us in the studio. It's a, a snapshot of time that we're we're spending together. So to judge us before or after this uh, is is wrong, you know. And when somebody ends up uh, being homeless and maybe looking for some money, it wasn't always like that. It wasn't always like that, you know. Um, there's a really good book called uh, Through a Glass Brightly. Um, it's probably out of print now, but it was written by a guy who was homeless for a long time in the UK. And he's got a wonderful picture in the middle of it. And it's just a picture of stereotypical homeless men standing around their beds in a dorm in a hostel for homeless people. And underneath it, he has written, every dosser was a baby once. And I think that's the way that we need to look at it. It's not about like the snapshot of the person in front of you who might be looking for some money and is in a bit of a bad way. It's kind of like, how do we get here? So it's a bit... It look it, it chimes in with Gabriel Mate's thing. It's it's not what's wrong with you, it's what happened to you. Yeah. How and did we get here, you know? It comes back to trauma and all kinds of trauma. Yeah. And we are starting to talk about that idea yeah. an, an awful lot more. So I know myself, like you know, you were kinda of saying how, how I get into the addiction piece. I um so I came off a building site, I ended up working with um people who are experiencing homelessness and I realised the two issues that were coming up all the time were mental health and addiction. And I realised I had no qualification in this at all. I didn't know anything. Now, my mother is uh, is retired now, but she was a psychiatric nurse. And I remember talking to her about it on the phone and saying, look, I, I don't know if I'm doing a good job here. I don't know what I'm doing, really. And she was just really helpful. And she said, listen, you know, you need to you need to get trained. You need to get trained in something. So I ended up going to the Mosley Hospital, uh, the National Addiction Centre in Denmark Hill in London. Uh, so for two years, I did a diploma in um, in addiction studies. And it was just a complete game changer for me just a complete game changer. And I realised that there was a lot of evidence-based interventions that we could do and use when working with people that might affect positive change. But even just to learn around harm reduction, around moderation, around all of that stuff, which is a massive game changer for me. So after that, um, I improved in my work, I would say. I think I became a much better worker. I was much more reflective. Um, but then I went on, I trained as a, uh, as a social worker. And very interesting, when I did my training as a social worker in the UK, I only worked in social work for a very brief period of time. The amount of training we got on addiction was minimal. And you think about a normal social worker's kind of caseload, you're going to be dealing with a lot of addiction. So I think addiction is this kind of thing that people talk about and they other it. You know, it's like it just happens to other people or it's it's over there and it's not going to affect me and I'm okay. And what we need to do is just be very open and honest about, you know, if you think about the people who are listening to this this program, the, the interesting thing is to think about, like, how far back do you have to go in your own family to come up with somebody that might have had an addiction? And most people will probably say it could be a sibling, it might be an aunt or an uncle, you know, uh, but you probably don't have to go back too far. And yet we tend to bury it, we tend not to talk about it. You know, it's that whole it's that whole thing that we have here around kind of shame and guilt, you know. Yeah, and I think, especially with mental health, we have begun to talk about it a lot more but we're ready to take another step on I think we kind of talk about it but then those of us who aren't trained in that area don't really know what to do with it Yeah. so we're, we're open to kind of talk about it or hear yeah. somebody had depression or hear somebody was an addict yeah. but after that we don't really know what to do or say Yeah, 
And I think that can be very debilitating because they're two scary words, aren't they? Like well, the mental health in, its, in itself and then, uh, and then addiction. And especially then, you know, if you look at addiction, there's certain types of addiction that might be hidden. There's certain types of addiction that might be more acceptable than others, you know. And this is because culturally the way that we're kind of trained to look at stuff or the way that we're kind of um, brainwashed in our upbringing to look at stuff is that maybe alcohol addiction might be viewed one way, heroin addiction might be viewed a very different way. The bottom line is, in psychology, the big question that we ask all the time is, what is the function of the behavior? So why are you taking what you're taking? And a lot of times what people are doing is they're self-medicating and they're trying to access, they're trying to access a space in their head where it just calms down. There's a girl I follow, she's a nutritionist and she talks a lot to people with food addiction and she said, it may surprise you to know, I don't really talk a lot about food. I'm a nutritionist and I don't really talk about food. It's never really about the food. And that was something you alluded to. It's a behaviour that's being used for a particular reason. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, I... um, uh, I work, uh, some, I carry a very small private caseload um, and then obviously I do uh, the lecturing with the Learning Curve uh, Institute and a couple of bits and pieces that we, we do. I lecture other, elsewhere as well. But it's very interesting if you were sitting on a session that I was doing with some people, um, if people are active in their drug use, um, you know, there's a little bit of maybe education, psychoeducational piece that we do. But the vast majority of it is about trying to work out what's going on, just what's going on, you know. And sometimes what can happen is that our our tolerance for managing things, uh, you know, is just at a certain limit and something comes along and it's the straw that breaks the camel's back and then that leads then to um, a, a relapse or a lapse or, a, you know, whatever, a slip, whichever way you want to describe it. But the deal there is it's not about shaming somebody or making people feel bad. It's about trying to work out, well, look, you know, what, what kind of went on there? And if you were to do that again, what would that be like? And what was it that kind of... Um, the times where you were thinking about doing it and you didn't do it. What's all that about? Do you know, because a lot of times what people can do is they can focus on the lapse or the relapse and people can really spend a lot of time talking about that. But actually, if you get to know somebody and try and work out what's going on, you know. So I, I spend a fair bit of time in clinical sessions trying to, taking a good history and just trying to work out kind of what's going on from a, from a clinical point of view. But really just trying to get to know the person, you know. Because more than likely, well, it, it absolutely is the case actually, the person who shows up that might be in, uh, might have an addiction issue, there's a huge history behind that where the addiction wasn't there. So let's just kind of talk about that and sort of see where we're going, you know. And when you talk about addiction, obviously alcohol comes under there, food, um, drugs, as as we've talked about there, but it comes down to a destructive behaviour. How do people know that it becomes problematic? So, well, an interesting thing to think about is like, um, there's lots, of, there's lots of definitions around. You can have exper- uh, uh, experimentation that people are kind of doing. You might have just kind of recreational use. You might have kind of, say, with drinking, you might have somebody who just does it occasionally. They do it frequently, but it's not an issue. They do it frequently, and occasionally it's an issue. They do it frequently, and nine times out of ten it's an issue. And so the treatment path for each one of those people is very, very different, you know. The key thing really is the person... Um, you know, kind of sees themselves that look, okay, this is, this is something that I need to kind of work on. And what can often happen in families in particular is the family member might have a real serious concern for, say, their partner or whatever, and they would try and get the person into treatment. And the way that normally happens is, you know, people will, they'll try and coerce them into treatment. And a lot of times that just won't work because the person isn't ready to kind of get in. Um, and just for anybody who's listening that might have that, that might be part of their kind of history, 
if they were to get in contact with their local uh, drug task force and specifically asked to speak with somebody who's trained in craft, which is community reinforcement and family training. And it's, a, it's an evidence-based intervention for family members to encourage a loved one into treatment. And it's been independently assessed. It works six out of ten times. It's by a guy called Robert J. Myers, uh, PhD, based in New Mexico. Um, so just for family members that might be listening where they're kind of really, really worried and feel they can't do anything, the key thing is to look after themselves. There's obviously Al-Anon, and there's also a really good thing called the five-step method um, that people can just Google and uh, and follow through if they want to. Um, but the idea is that the person might kind of reach a point where they kind of go, okay, I'm not really happy. What tends to happen is that we, we tend to work in extremes here. So it's either you haven't got an issue or you have an issue. And if you have an issue, the only thing you have to do, or the, what you have to do is you have to go and get treatment. And that could be residential treatment. And for a lot of people, it's appropriate. And for some people, for a lot of people, it isn't appropriate. So the deal is about trying to work out with the person what they want to do and where they want to go. So, for instance, if there was an addiction issue and the person wants to be abstinent, fine. Okay, there's loads of services out there for that. Um, if somebody wants to cut down, again, there's lots of service, lots of harm reduction services that are out there. But what I would suggest is that if anybody's listening to this, uh, this program, and if you're a bit worried about your own substance use, Right, so you're just a little bit concerned about it. I'm not necessarily saying that there's any, a big issue or not, but just scale it. Scale it on a, one, on a scale of 1 to 10. So 1 is like, I'm not happy with my substance use at the present time. And 10 is, I'm really happy with my substance use at the present time. Where would you be? And if the answer is like, say, 4, in order for it to get better for to a 5 or a 6, what would need to happen? And again, it's just, it's making that decision inside yourself. And if you own it, more than likely it'll be successful. And it's interesting you bring up family members because, mm. you know, it, it it is a very tough thing to have uh, someone you love in the grips of, of an addiction. And Certainly. we do hear this all the time. You can't help them until they're ready to help themselves. Yeah. Where do you stand on, on tough love and, and family members who have to just cut ties for their own sanity? Yeah, so, so people do that. And um, for a long time, like I've never done that. I've I've never suggested people do that because ultimately it's it's people's decision. And it's a very easy thing from the, the lofty <laughs> position of being a therapist to kind of say, oh, you need to cut ties and do whatever. But imagine if you did do that. Imagine if you actually said that. I don't think any therapist worth their salt would ever say that. But if they did, and then some something happens to that person and you're the mother or the brother or the sister, uh, it's the knock-on effect of that. So the tough love stuff, and again, it goes back to craft, community reinforcement, family training. It was contrasted with the Johnson Institute who do interventions like that. Um, and craft was deemed to be far more successful. So I think if the person doesn't want to come into treatment, the big thing is that the family member or loved one uh, gets some support themselves. Because the idea is that if you make your life, because what tends to happen is you put your life on hold and you're waiting for this person to kind of change. And that may happen, it may not happen. But if you're looking for an evidence-based intervention, craft is the way to go, really. Yeah, because like you said, like that phone call you made to your mum, as a family member, we're not fully equipped to help them. We're only able to be their family member or their loved one. So maybe sometimes it's time to call in yeah. a little cavalry somewhere along the line. Oh, no, and what I would say is like the, the drug task forces are just great. Like the, there's loads of them around the country. Uh, just work out the one that's in your area. Just give them a call. And this will be without judgment and without the Absolutely. law being brought in or Absolutely. anything like that. Absolutely. No, no, look, there. The drug task forces are just great. They do some fantastic work uh, across the country. It's just, they're really, like, I think they're underfunded and they're overworked, but they're absolutely brilliant. 
they will normally have a family support worker attached to the team and that family support worker will help you access things like if you wanted Al-Anon craft or any family support that's going on in the area and it's free. It doesn't cost anything. So I'd really encourage people to try and check that out because living with it, the knock-on effect of living with addiction in your family uh, is akin to having a long-term illness. Uh, there's some wonderful research they did in Finglas. I'm pretty sure it was in Finglas in relation to heroin use uh, and its impact on a family. And they looked at a number of families and what they found was that that the toll that you're carrying, the stress, it never goes off. Yeah, and it's um, back to that trauma piece that we, we touched on and the circles absolutely. continue. And what sort of um, drug use are we talking about? Has that evolved over time? Like we touched on stereotypes around uh, people yeah. who are homeless. We often have stereotypes about alcoholics and what that looks like, that that's not a functioning person, that's someone who's in the pub all the time. And you you did say earlier, it's like a spectrum. We think of heroin addiction in one way, whereas cocaine addiction can happen every weekend and people aren't really aware of it. Is that the kind of thing that you're seeing? Yeah, no, definitely. Like So there's definitely been an increase in coke, uh, cocaine use, uh, that's for sure, just in my private work. Uh, There's been... It's like it's it's really really increasing. I'm back living in Ireland now for 22 years, and it's like when I first came back, I was working in in the West. There wasn't really that much coke around. There was a fair bit of speed, but there wasn't really that much coke. Um, but now that really has increased. Yeah, and there is this kind of stereotypical view of cocaine users um, uh, and who they are and kind of what they do. And if you look at the states, in particular, uh, Clinton when he was in, he brought in uh, 100 to one sentencing, which is quite interesting. So. Um, he made this thing that if you got caught with five grams of crack cocaine, you immediately got five years in prison. If you were caught with five grams of, of powder, you'd have to be caught with 500 grams of powder cocaine in order to get five years in prison. So, like... Mm. Okay, so, so the, the reason for this is a fantastic article uh, called Crack in the Rearview Mirror uh, by Reinman, And it just kind of, it puts forward this idea that the reason that it was so heavy on crack is because crack was associated with normally uh, poor neighbourhoods and, and the black community. Uh, so it was, a, it was a racist law uh, that was brought in. Uh, the guy to read on this actually is a guy called Carl Hart, uh, Dr. Carl Hart, and his book High Price and the second book he wrote, which is uh, Drug Use for Grown-Ups, are well worth checking out. They're well worth checking out because we have this stereotypical view, exactly to say, Claire, that like an alcoholic, in inverted commas, and I don't like that term, but an alcoholic is this or somebody who's addicted to heroin is this or somebody who does coke is this. And the reality is it affects everybody. It yeah, affects and it's all the strata, you know. It's not coming back to that original important question, why are you taking this the way you are? Yeah. And you know, it doesn't really matter what the substance is at the end of the day. It's just what is the reason it's become such a powerful force over your life. Yeah. What about cannabis then? That's now being legalized across the world and is often looked at something that's yeah. less harmful. What's your take on that? Yeah, so I, I think if if we had a regulated market I think it would be it would be good, and I think if we, I think we're probably a ways off that. But for decriminalisation, like honestly, that's it, to my mind that's a bit of a no-brainer. Decriminalisation. So if you look to what's happened in Portugal, and you look to like the success that they have had there, it is a little odd that we that we're not more advanced uh, with the talk. I know that there is there is a debate now, and hopefully we'll have a citizens' assembly, and that'll probably have have an impact on things. But all I would say, right, no matter which side of the fence you fall on here, whether you're pro-legalisation, anti-legalisation, pro decrim or anti, the bottom line is what we're doing is not working. 
And what we're doing is we are criminalizing people who are very unwell. And what's the point in that? Do you know what I mean? Like, what's the point in that? I mean, like, is that a society you actually want to live in? Do you want to live in a society where people who are ill are sent to prison? Or do you want to have a much more understanding? And, and like, I think Leo Varadkar said, I think it was in, I think it might have been 2000, jeez, man, it, it was 2010 or 12 or something like that. Um, when he was in power, he he said that, you know, the drug use, the drug issue is a health issue. But we haven't really progressed that because we still criminalise people. We still lock them up. So I think we need to change. And I think we need to be brave enough as a society to kind of go, do you know what? This isn't working. Can we have a normal grown-up debate and just see where this goes? And if it means that we decriminalise stuff, can we try it for a period of time and see what happens? The sky isn't going to fall in, you know. And more than likely what we can do is we can divert money that we spend so much money locking people up. You know, the average, the, the cost per annum to keep somebody in a prison cell is astronomical. Not to um, mention the drug use in prison. But absolutely. yeah, let's take it away from being uttered. Yeah. Put it under the spotlight and, and start talking about it. I completely yeah. agree. And I think we all need to ask ourselves, what kind of society do we want to live in? We are running out of time. I could yeah. literally talk to you all day, Sean. But I want to ask very quickly about your work with the learning curve, because I think it's really yeah. important, the work that you're doing there. So so it's very interesting. So the, the learning curve um, got set up probably about 14 years ago now. But prior to that, when I first came back from the UK, I had worked in what we refer to as wet services. So wet services are basically places, hostels for homeless people, where people are allowed to consume alcohol on the premises. And we moved. So when I came back here, there were no wet services. And I just kind of worked as a drug uh, worker in the West. Um, but I had this kind of expertise that very few people had. So I got approached to do this training. So I ended up doing uh, a tranche of training for a variety of groups that were thinking about going wet. So how do you manage people who are actively drinking all the time? Um, so it started off doing that. And then I got asked to do other bits of training. And I never advertised around that, but I just ended up getting a load of training uh, over the years. And then it morphed into, OK, I need to set up a company. So we set up the Learning Curve uh, Institute and initially what we were doing was we were working with non-profits, which we still do. Uh, so we do an awful lot of work with um, non-profits that work with the homeless population, uh, drug services. We do an awful lot of work uh, there. But then we were approached by the corporates uh, to come in and do some work specifically around mental health and addiction. Um, so what we do is we go into a company and we'll ask them what they want. Uh, we create a bespoke piece of training for them. Everybody that's coming on the training will get a, a pre-training questionnaire to ask them their level of knowledge on the subject and what they'd like to get at the end of the training. And what we do is we put together a bespoke package to meet those needs. But the big thing that we're trying to do and that we do when we're training is we demystify mental health, mental illness, whatever you want to call it, and addiction. And what we do is we try and give people some very basic skills to signpost people to have those very tricky conversations sometimes, you know. So if you're really worried about somebody's substance use and you're managing them, you know, it can be hard to have that conversation, but there's a framework that we have around kind of doing that. It's very successful. And the idea is that the managers will be trained in how to interact with the person they're kind of a bit concerned about and signpost them. And then what we do as well is it's on the ground. If you were going to send somebody somewhere or get some services, what would that look like? Where would it be? And it just takes it that step on, because like I said, there's a willingness yeah. there for people to be open to talk about mental health or addiction or ill health or whatever. But to know what to actually do about that is yeah. where people get a bit lost. We don't know where to go with that. And that's something that you're doing. Well, Sean, I'm delighted you were a bad builder. 
Because look at all <laughs> we would have missed out on. Uh, Dr. Sean Foy, yeah. thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Now, Teachers Inspire 2022, organised and run by Dublin City University, is calling for nominations of inspiring teachers in Ireland and stories about the positive impact a teacher has made in their lives. The initiative, which celebrates all teachers, highlights how in and out of the classroom they can inspire imagination, creativity, confidence and courage. Teachers Inspire is curated by acclaimed author Louise O'Neill, who also presents the Teachers Inspire podcast and she joins me on the line now. Louise, you're very welcome. Oh, thank you so much. And I think we all got a serious upgrade in appreciation for teachers during the pandemic when homeschooling became the norm. But aside from teaching, the the nuts and bolts of teaching, the reading and writing and arithmetic, teachers really do have the ability to inspire and change the path of a young person's life, don't they? Oh, I totally agree. And actually, I do think that's funny that you said that about during the pandemic, because I think, I mean, I don't have children myself, but I know friends of mine who do. And they said, wow, I did not realise how difficult um, this job is trying to teach these kids. And I suppose the thing about being a teacher is that it's more like a vocation than a career in lots of ways, because it's such a broad, like, wide ranging role. You know, it's not just, I suppose, the education piece and really trying to ensure that every student reaches their academic potential. But like, there's also the personal part of it where, you know, they're often the first port of call. They're on the lookout for signs of abuse or, you know, addiction or um, depression. And, you know, because of that, it's such it's such a responsibility, I think, um, being a teacher. And I suppose with the Teachers Inspire Awards, we're really trying to celebrate the contribution that teachers make, not just in the classroom, but to society as a whole. Yeah, because they come under fire quite a lot, don't they? Because we're all jealous of the holidays. But (laughs) as you say, it, it is a real vocation. And that's what I learned. The patience involved in being a teacher is a skill I do not have. I don't know how they do it. I know. And I I agree with you that they get a bad rap because of the hours and the the holidays. But, you know, my sister is a primary school teacher and she asked me once, um, years ago now, to come in and help her with um, her Christmas school play. And I remember going in, I think it was for an hour and coming out. I was like, I'm absolutely exhausted. Like I could barely speak. And I suppose, you know, because it's one of those jobs where you have to be present every second of every day. So I think they do actually need, they need the holidays. Otherwise they would completely burn out. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. I don't really have a problem with it at all. I just think it's kind of jealousy um, more than anything (laughs) else, but without an understanding of what it actually takes and that they don't all skip out the door at at 20 past two. You know, there is a lot more to it. And you do interview your sister and the podcast series. I do. I do. Um, It was um, the first episode of the Teachers Inspire podcast. Um, I interviewed my sister, who, um, as I said, is a primary school teacher in Clonakilty. Um, And I also interviewed um, my, the teacher that I would say was sort of the teacher who inspired me, um, which was my English teacher from secondary school, um, a woman called Jo Keane. And it was just really lovely, I suppose, to, you know, just to talk to some teachers in my life um, and to really express my admiration um, and gratitude 
um, for for them and, and the work that they do. Now, I'm not trying to take away, obviously we're here to talk about teachers being inspiring and, and this is what we've said, but I, I wanted to ask you, particularly through the lens of, of, of your sister, is it a huge expectation that we're putting on the shoulders of teachers alongside the curriculum markers that have to be met and the dealing with the social skills that pop up, the issues, all of that, to expect them to be these inspirational characters as well? No, I, I mean, I agree. And actually, you know, in the um, Teachers Inspire podcast, you know, it was really interesting speaking to educators about, you know, the challenges they face, particularly, you know, as during COVID and um, how teaching has changed and evolved and, you know, the importance of inclusivity in education and children's mental health and early childhood education. I mean, the conversation um, as part of the Teachers Inspire podcast was so fascinating. I, I would recommend anyone who is a parent or a teacher um, to go listen, but I was really, I was like really impressed, but also quite taken aback by just the breadth um, of the role, um, because it is, as I keep saying, it's such a huge responsibility. And you know, so much of what we're doing with Teachers Inspire is is not just celebrating current teachers, but really hoping to inspire young people to go into education, because like it's such an important role, and I think we want the best of the best going into education, because. They're the ones who are going to be shaping the minds of future generations. And like that's essential. Yeah. And I think when we when we envisage um, an inspirational teacher, we might think of, of the movie Dead Poets Society and, and yeah. the, oh, Captain, <laughs> yeah. my captain, and everyone stands up and it starts this big revolution. And I'm sure there are teachers out there that are, are causing these sparks and how amazing that is. Mm-hmm. But you are also looking at things like introducing sign language to a classroom, you know, prioritising mental health, watching out for some of those child safety issues that you yeah. mentioned, being there for the school play. I mean, it can be on a smaller level, but no, that doesn't make it any less huge. No, and I think that is very true. And I suppose because we're get, we're asking Irish people to submit stories to teachersinspire.ie um, and just sort of talk about, you know, the teacher um, in their life that really made a difference. But I suppose I really want to get across that, you know, that can be a teacher from last year or it can be a teacher from 20 years ago. It can be primary or secondary school, but also you know, we've had some stories that are incredibly profound, you know, like one woman who whose father died by suicide when she was in her leaving cert year. And, you know, just this one teacher really sort of holding her hand through her grief um, and helping her graduate. But then, you know, there are other, you know, beautiful stories you know, that are just about smaller moments where, let's say, um, someone who you know, was in primary school 25 years ago and the teacher organised a book club um, and just as having that moment, um, you know, within the school day to talk about books and to explore their love of literature and how I suppose that fostered, um, you know, her love of reading as an adult today. So I think it's really about encouraging people that it can be any kind of story. And I suppose the thing that I would say is life is very short and I think we often regret the thanks we did not give. And it's nice to give people their fl- their flowers, I suppose, while they're still around. And that's why I think the Teachers Inspire um, initiative is so heartwarming and so wonderful because every person that I've mentioned this to has a story about one teacher or one moment um, in their academic life that really stayed with them or, you know, made a difference or gave them comfort or shaped them in some way. 
And I suppose, you know, going to teachersinspired.ie and sharing those stories, um, I think it's just such a lovely thing to do. Yeah, I love that. Give th- give thanks and flowers now rather yeah. than, than waiting. And Louise, did the seed of you becoming the writer you are today begin in your classroom with your, your English teacher, Joe Keane? Yes. Um, you know, when I was in fourth year, I think I was, yeah, I was 15 at the time. And um, I still remember it was in the library in Sacred Heart Secondary School in Clonakilty. And she had this very long um, table kind of laid out with all these different books. And she picked up The Handmaid's Tale and she handed it to me and she said, I think you're really going to enjoy this. And I mean, I'd never heard of Margaret Atwood. You know, I had no sort of frame of reference for, I suppose, how culturally um, significant that novel was. And I went home, I read it in one sitting. And honestly, when I looked up from the pages of that book, the way in which I saw the world had completely shifted on its axis. And I do not think I would be the person I am today. But I also don't think I would be the writer I am today if Ms. Keane hadn't given me that book at such a formative age. And I suppose what's funny is, like like so many of the stories for the Teachers Inspire Awards, um, she... You know, she wasn't doing that with the thought of, oh, this is going to make Louise become a writer one day or this will make Louise a feminist. She was handing it to me because it was just one small role, you know, in that day where she was hoping to encourage a love of literature in an, in a student that, you know, she knew was a good reader or, you know, whatever. And like it just completely shaped the person I became. Um, and I just think that is the power of a good teacher that is, you know, the, uh, that it, I think it just shows like how important teachers can be and how they really deserve to be celebrated, which is what the Teachers Inspire Awards are about. Agreed. And I mean, now you've gone on to become a best-selling author and your books do weave cultural issues and societal questions alongside fiction. So, yes, thank you to Joe Keane and to yeah. you <laughs> for writing them. That website again for people is teachersinspire.ie and click on share your story. Nominations close on the 20th of January 2023 and you can check out the Teachers Inspire podcast now. Louise O'Neill, thank you so much. It was lovely talking to you today. Thank you so much for having me. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Aoife Breen and Hugo De Silva Scott who was on sound and thanks to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna Sunday morning at 8 with Benelin on News Talk.